Well, hello, Will Ford, dear friend, and our audience that's listening yes, 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 and watching. Yes. We are so excited to get to introduce Will to you guys. Yeah, we need to do the drum roll. We forgot that part. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can read his bio, but we will say that he is the author of an amazing book called The Dream King, and I'm sure he'll tell you how you can get a hold of that at the end of our conversation today. And um, he also is the former director of Christ for the Nations and professor there as well out of Dallas. And we met, um, gosh, just try, trying to remember even how long ago that was. About eight years ago. And yeah. I, I, you and I were get, talking outside of an event that Johnny got further into than we did. And I remember right. telling you, you've got to get to know Will. He's amazing. Yeah, I know. And just kind of loosely stayed in touch. And then I know it was your son that had a profound series of dreams. Yeah. Yep. Seven dreams, seven nights in a row at seven years old. <laughs> um, all about uh, the coronavirus and, you know, and uh, it was intense. Yep. And right at the beginning of the end, we felt like his dream represented the beginning of the end of it, April the 30th. And if you look at what was happening globally, and this dream was about what was happening around the world with it, globally, that's when the, you know, the death rates started going down and, and uh, everything so, else. So it's pretty, it's pretty powerful dream, yeah. It really Seriously. was. And you know, on that, since it was, it was brought in, I think we don't recognize that, um, or that many don't recognize it. Like, well, the COVID's still going on. The COVID lie is still going on, but it really was, defrocked at that time there was something that it was brought down to um you know that's how we kept seeing that it was being beat down and in size and yeah. it literally you know i was a cdc some one of the major health organizations a couple of days ago had to say that the fatality rate is 0.04 percent which is less than flu uh flu rate wow. so how can that you know they're like, no there's 20 million cases around the world 21 million positive. There was 61 million positives for H1N1 a few years ago that never made the news. And in fact, President Obama uh, ordered them to stop doing the counting. And 61, 61 million in the United States alone. This is 20 million around the world. Is it real? Wow. Yes, it's real. Uh, and if they didn't suppress the cure, it would even be less than the 0.04% because literally tens of thousands of deaths could have been avoided. It really is next to nothing. You know, flus aren't nothing. They kill fifty to ninety thousand a year as well. But that's just that's that's not our main main topic. But <laughs> I believe that was uh, so legitimate, totally. and, and there really was that thing was beat down. Now we've just allowed a lying spirit to uh, uh, elongate that process. But we are so excited about having you, Will. Every time we talk to you and and you and your wife, we say, "Oh man, we got to be in touch more often. How do we connect next?" So one of these days. Or one of these yeah. seats will be able to uh, do that more often. But we're in the midst of this series where we're having courageous conversations about racism, the race issue. Obviously, everything flared up um, after the Floyd um, murder. murder, really. And and um, and out of that, it's come. You know, it's that we need the body of Christ. We need to have conversations. We need to be able to be real. That. Yes, we, we know that there's a sinister component to the Black Lives Matter movement, not the statement. The statement's amazing, awesome, 
and nobody disagrees with that, and there's much support for it, but there is a sinister Marxist, anarchist element behind it, but this is what will happen when the body of Christ doesn't properly address what needs to be addressed. Uh, in that vacuum, the enemy comes and will 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 say the right, uh, you know, the motto and that needs to be said, but um, turn it in a in a wrong direction. So, you know, part of what we want to um, see happen in just our conversation is is just honesty that helps us helps us all. We both we know each other enough that we're both kingdom first above everything else. But we're not one of those ones that says, no, we're not, you know, when it says in Christ, you're neither male, female, Greek, and all that, it doesn't mean you're neither black or white. It's like, yeah, your first identity is in Christ. Yeah, we're one race of all that. But then our second identity, if we want to put it that way, is who he made us to be. It's like we could have discussed the, the female gender, female versus male gender battles that, that go on. And we're called to be ministers of reconciliation, representing who he made us to be. So. We're white, we're a white couple, and, and if your wife was there, you'd, we'd say you're a black couple, African-American. And so we need to have um, these, these courageous conversations. And I don't know, we didn't talk, discuss who would have the, the first question. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you want yeah, people more. to know yeah, what, about What else you? should we know about you? Yeah, so uh, first I want people to know that I love Johnny and Elizabeth Enloe. And oh. <laughs> I've been following this man's teaching for quite some time and uh, taught a lot of what he teaches about the seven mountains of influence and culture and society uh, there in my marketplace leadership major there where I was director at Christ for the Nations doing that for about seven, eight years. And uh, really, I just recently resigned from there so I could fully invest myself in the healing the racial divide. I believe I've been equipped for it uniquely because of this amazing family history. My family, I have a 200-year, yeah, there's a 200-year-old kettle pot. I'll, I'll give you like the one-minute elevator version of it, but it's a 200-year-old kettle pot. Uh, it was used by the slaves in my family. That's why it was passed down. They used it for cooking, but they secretly used it for prayer because the slave master would beat them if they heard him praying because he didn't want them praying for freedom. But these folks were Christians. They prayed anyway, so they would sneak into a barn late at night to make sure their prayer meeting wasn't seen. But to make sure that prayer meeting wasn't heard, they used this cast iron kettle pot. So they'd take that pot and they would invert it and turn it upside down on the cabin floor. Then they would prop it up with about three or four rocks on the edges so it'd be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. Then they would lay flat on the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle. So the kettle pot would muffle their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down with the pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of the children in the next generation. So one day freedom comes, there's this young teenage girl, she decides to keep that pot and that story in our family. And she passed the pot and the story down. The Harriet Lockett, who passed it on the Nora Lockett, who passed it on to William Ford Sr., then to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So since 2001, I've been taking that pot around the country to talk about the prayer bowls in heaven. Revelation 5 and 8 show the bowls in heaven full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And it wasn't just the prayers of those godly Christian slaves who were praying. There were also the prayers of white Christian abolitionists and revivalists who knew that if any person was a slave, was a Christian, knew that the person was their brother. They let their lives down for each other. Listen, they had their houses burned. Many of those white abolitionists had their, uh, they were tarred and feathered, they were shot, they were killed, and they were lynched as well because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and wicked slavery. 
So I had this dream about Dr. King <clears throat> in 2003, 2004. And in that dream, God dealt with me about my unforgiveness issues that I had with the police in my area and also with white people in my region. Yes. And so I shared that dream with my friend, Lou Engel. He says, hey, bring your kettle, share that dream at the Lincoln Memorial, <clears throat> the MLK celebration day. Well, little did I know there was a white guy who came to that gathering because of a dream. He dreamed about the man over the event. Luengo didn't know that he existed, so he looked him up on the internet. He comes to that event, and we became friends. We've been friends for 15, 16 years. Well, fast forward. That white friend of mine found out that the Civil War ended in his family's front yard. So he thought, man, what a cool coincidence. I have this kettle pot where the slaves pray for freedom. You have this house where General Lee fought his last battle. We thought, what a cool coincidence. But y'all, we stumbled on more research and we learned that it was his family who owned my family where that kettle pot came from. What? We met at the Lincoln Memorial, both led by dreams, to the place where Dr. King said in his I Have a Dream speech, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. And so that's like the tip of the iceberg of the story. So we've been traveling the country with it. I mean, the, the story is, I mean, his, his family is also the family that invented the Confederate flag. <laughs> with the, <laughs> the Confederate flag. I had oh, not heard gosh. that. That is amazing. What? Yes, but, but there's, there's more to it. We talk about it in our book. But I feel uniquely equipped to do this now. I feel like I have to do this right now. I feel like the unfinished business of the prayers of my forefathers is beckoning me in this generation to dive into this headlong and be a part of healing the breach that's there between uh, all of us right now. And I think even those dreams that my son were, was, was given during that time period, I think the whole thing is this, social distancing has revealed the social distance in our hearts. Mm -hmm. And God has allowed this exposure because he wants to heal the nation, he wants to heal the country, and he's preparing us for an amazing, massive awakening. You know, before every great awakening, there was always a rude awakening. And that's why I believe we're in right now. So good. So true. That is, that is an amazing story. And I've heard a, a, a lengthier version of it. I know it really has just a wave after wave of um, amazing God, um, God involved in it all. And so he's clearly positioned you, raised you up for such a time as this with this uh, message and understanding. And, you know, I was just, um, I don't think I even told you last weekend I was in, uh, you knew I was in Cincinnati, so that part's not the surprise, but it went with our COO to the Underground Railroad Museum in Cincinnati. You know, Cincinnati oh, was, wow. was just so key. That was uh, what was yeah. called Underground Railroad, wasn't really underground, wasn't a railroad, but it, um, informally called Levi Coffin. Uh, um, he was known as, you know, informally the president of it. And so thousands of, of slaves, that was if you crossed the Ohio River, then they would send you and put you in a house at another home and all that. And both Levi Coffin and, and then the ones, the houses that were all around there. Um, and the story came out in Uncle Tom's Cabin and, and Harry mm -hmm. Joe and that was all from that region and situations from around there. But, you know, we were reading, and in the museum there was pictures of, of many. Uh, it was amazing that all the, all the key people that were working towards, um, towards freeing slaves from the white side 
I will say all of them, but a high percentage of them were the Quaker backgrounds, including Levi Coffin. And so there was a, there was a, a, a someone who you know had his picture in his story. He got a 17-year prison sentence for assisting for being a home for being where blacks would come there. And so, wow, it, wow, it, wow. Uh, no impact. Impacting. No, I have a question. Okay. I'm just speaking of that, like your personal experience. You mentioned mm -hmm. part of your story that there was a time when you had to um, go to another level of forgiveness. Can you yeah. speak more into that? Like what, what's, you know, any, any of your experiences that would help us understand there, there are unfortunately people today that still believe that either there's no racism or no, no systemic racism. But one of the things mm -hmm. we're wanting people to understand is that people our age, our generation, and younger right. have very recent relevant stories to tell. Well, and before you jump into that, because I was going to go there, I just wanted to preface it, set the, sure. uh, the picture of it. It's like Will Ford, is, he interacts with, you know, say the black church, the white church. He's, uh, you mentioned Lou Engel. He's in the circles with Dutch, uh, Dutch Sheets and Chuck Pierce. Mm -hmm. And so him in and out of there, and, and you would not know unless you heard this this part of it because i've heard just a little bit of this but i think it's important for our audience to understand they'll see your face someone who's working on reconciliation clearly been healed from it and you just threw it away you yeah. don't carry a victim mentality no but you said i had to be healed uh, and they're like i wonder what what was you know what's so bad about that and so i think it just helps if you yeah just be as honest as you can with that yeah yeah so the dream let me tell you the dream that i had too and um, again we you know we i talk about it in greater detail in the book but i had this dream where i was on my way to dr king's old church in dexter avenue baptist there in montgomery alabama and in the dream i couldn't get there until i first picked up dr king so in the dream louis and lanau drive and we go to this house of course it's a dream so dr king is alive and in the dream he has this humongous white duffel bag with black candles on it and in the dream, he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. Then he throws the bag down just like violently. And then he comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought to myself, man, you know, that, that bag would make a nice souvenir. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I was thinking in the dream, I went to Morehouse College, he went to Morehouse College, the bag would make a nice souvenir. So in the dream, I go to try to pick up the baggage, but before I could even touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders and he says, no! Do not go back and pick that up. And then in the dream, he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the race issue in this nation. So I wake up in a dream, Johnny, and wow. I'm just soaked in tears. I've That's been weeping in intercession the whole night and didn't even realize it. I shared the dream with Lou. He begins to weep. And so I just began to pray, God, remind me, what did Dr. King say to me? And the Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black handles, that would be the interpretation for your dream. And I realized the black handles represented how I, as a black man, as an African-American man, have been handling my white baggage. God was what? saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. Mm. And so I knew what he was talking about because I'm, I know what it's like at 13 years old to come out of a convenience store with uh, three other friends. We're walking out of that convenience store and a carload full of white guys who did not know us 
start revving up their car, start shouting the N-word at us, said they were going to shoot and kill us, and they chased us for about two hours. Um, they were probably just joyriding, but listen, we, we were horrified. I don't know what it's like at 19 years old to be falsely accused of shoplifting, and when the police officer couldn't find anything on me, he uh, uh, tried to say ugly things to me to pr try to provoke me into a fight so he could take me in on any kind of cause. I know what it's like uh, in my 30s to get my first nice house in the suburbs and have the same police officer for the first three months every week would just pull me over just for driving while black in my own neighborhood. I know what that feels like, but you know what I've done for every police officer and for every white person in that region? I put those stories in front of everybody. I saw everybody through that grid. I saw everybody through that through that veil of that narrative, both shared stories, even other people have gone through similar things. And this it's, the, it's Revelation 12, where it says the devil is the, the accuser of the brethren. The word accuser is a powerful Greek word. It comes from the Greek word kategoros, where we get the word category. So the diabolical plot of the enemy is to get us to categorize and stereotype each other so that before we can ever have one conversation to find out who somebody is, we just throw them, lump them in the categories, and uh, we just stereotype people, and we just keep moving on. And so God, what God was saying to me, William, get rid of your bitterness, get rid of your unforgiveness, get rid of your resentment, get rid of your white baggage, so we can all get into a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. So the question God has for the body of Christ right now is this, what color is your baggage? Wow. Get rid of it, y'all, because we need each other. Because only a united church is going to heal the division in this nation. Wow. That is, um, that is, that is so incredibly powerful. Um, we'll just want to chew on that for even longer. And hopefully, yeah, whoever's listening to this, this, this hangs out. You know, that's why I want to just pause. we we'll do a seal moment for this, for this, just what he, what he, what he just said. And, and, and really, you know, I love your, your your casting vision for prophetic vision for where this is going. There is, uh, you know, there's something amazing God is in the process of doing in this nation. It's undercover. It's it's uh, it looks like a storm right now, but we're really, I do believe, we're entering the most amazing times ever. Yeah. And and it'll be clear once we get into next year. And the United States really has been called, you know, it's called the melting pot, and really every nation has a foundation. A strong foundation of, and by that I mean a lot of people here, and it really is a melting pot of the nations. There's no doubt about it that we were called as a nation to be a healing melting pot. This is a melting yeah. pot, a stew of healing for the nations, you know. And in that, it requires um, it, it requires us, uh, in particular, the sons and daughters of the King, to step into the next level of of maturity and being yeah. able to talk about the things we need to talk about. Nothing can be off the table for discussion. And it is so hard, so many minefields in, in talking on, on race. And, yeah. and you trigger words and trigger phrases, something Elizabeth mentioned a little bit earlier about systemic racism. And it's like, we can't say it or we can say it. We're having this conversation <laughs> with Jackson as well. And so I just laid out, listen, there is systemic racism. Where do you think, uh, where do you see the, the vagrancy laws came from? Where do, you, where do you think the no loitering? Just because people so give me an example. I'll give you an example. Go study where that came from. And there's many, many, many more. And so, you know. Even, even just the, uh, the 
eugenics and the, the history in our nation of where oh, Planned Parenthood started and targeting um, black neighborhoods. Like it's, it's in the system. <laughs> right, and people don't think that that has a that has a lot of weight when they talk. We talk about eugenics. To me, honestly, eugenics is the pink elephant in the room when you talk about this issue. Give an example of what I'm talking about. There was a a, a man in the Bronx Zoo. I say not. When I say in the Bronx Zoo, it sounds like that was like a mistake to say that. No, he was literally in the Bronx Zoo. His name was Oda Benga. He was an animal trainer from Africa. And very good at it, but someone who was part of the eugenics movement, just for, so people don't know what eugenics means, uh, EU in front of a word means good, like eulogy. You say something good about somebody when they die, so EU uh, means something good. So eugenics, meaning genes, good genes, good gene people. So the idea for folks within the eugenics movement, we was all very, you know, uh, elitist, very wealthy people who had this mindset. They believe that. Uh, you had eugenic people and you had dysgenic people. And so you had this group of people that deserved to be here and this other group of people who were draining all the supplies and resources from the people who deserved to be here. So the idea was to proliferate the eugenic people and uh, control the population or eliminate the population of the people that, quote unquote, didn't deserve to be here. And so for the eugenic people at that time period, they believed that populations grew geometrically. They felt like, um, Food supplies grew arithmetically. In other words, at some point in time, there's not going to be enough food left for the people who, quote unquote, deserve to be here. So the eugenic people at that time, the, unique, the people who are part of this movement, they not only looked down on uh, people who were disabled, uh, people who uh, had, uh, <clears throat> had uh, uh, other, other issues, uh, they looked down on blacks, they looked down on Jews. Those were all dysgenic people to them. And the other thing, this is this the one that gets me the most. The other thing that these folks believe, they believe that poverty was an inherited trait and crime was an inherited trait. In other words, just like somebody can pass down the color of their eyes from one generation to the next, they believe that poverty was passed down inherently in people's genes from one generation to the next. So <clears throat> that kind of science is what they had that time period. So <clears throat> Francis Galton, you gotta check out the sample, but Francis Galton was the cousin of Charles Darwin, who came up with this crazy theory of of, of evolution, which was also very racist. So his cousin, uh, and his cousins do, they took it to the next level. <laughs> and so here's what happened. Um, so Oda Benga is there, uh, and a man part of the eugenics movements in Africa sees Oda Benga and how well he is as a animal whisperer. We call him the animal whisperer today because he was so good. Said, you know what? This man is a very good example of how black people are closer to apes and monkeys on the evolutionary scale. So he deceived Odabinga into going with him back to Louisiana, to the World's Fair. So he puts Odabinga on display at the World's Fair. And people became outraged about it. And they said, look, this is just social Darwinism. Huh? Say that again? Yeah. 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 This is just social Darwinism. You're just trying to prove that black people are closer to Close to the apes and monkeys and white people on the, on the evolutionary scale. He said, you know what? You're right. This is an educational exhibit. So Madison Grant, who was over the Bronx Zoo at the time period, who was part of the eugenics movement, he buys Oda Benga from the World's Fair. Now, that's crazy, right? This is 1906. This is like 40 plus years after slavery is over. 
buys Odovinga from the Bronx Zoo, puts him on display in the Bronx Zoo, and Odovinga actually had apes and monkeys that were his cellmates in the Bronx Zoo. That's right. That's when he was in the cage. Yeah. Oh. He, he put in the cage there, and then and so um, forty thousand people a weekend would come to see uh, Odovinga, and so eventually enough pastors you know protested and. He was released, but he shot himself in the heart. Here's the thing. That man, Madison Grant, went on to write a book called The Passing of the Great Race. This whole eugenics book about scientific racism and uh, why, why people need to watch out because you're the supremacist group of, of people that we're going to pass away if we don't get rid of these dysgenic people. And so Hitler was so uh, appreciative of that book that book was on Hitler's bedside when he died. He read, he read it all the time. That was his playbook. The other person who used that book as their playbook was a lady named Margaret Sanger. She told everybody, everyone has to read The Passing of the Great Race by Madison Grant. And so she went on, of course, as a eugenics leader to start the organization Planned Parenthood. It's not a mistake that 80% of them, 70, or close to 70 to 80% of those clinics are in minority communities. It's not a mistake that uh, she's also quoted as saying that color of people are like human weeds and need to be exterminated. And it's not a mistake that just last week, Johnny, um, the Bronx Zoo came out and they disavowed and apologized for what their founder, Madison Grant, said and did. And it's not a mistake that week before that, new, the New York Planned Parenthood that was founded by Margaret Sanger came out and disavowed Margaret Sanger. So August, I know, every, and that's a good thing. So I know people are shaking in their boots about some of the stuff that's being taken down. I, and some of these other statues, like George Washington taking down him, they, they actually tried to take down Frederick Douglass's statue. But in the midst of all this shaking that's going on, there are some very legitimate things that are being addressed. And so yeah. uh, the, the things that, that, that we got from Madison Grant's eugenic racist history and for margaret sanger's uh, eugenic racist history needed to be exposed and secularists are exposing it right now you know i think god's putting his finger on this stuff right now we've been praying in this for years we just have to be the ones that control the narrative we have to be the ones that steward this time and the church cannot retreat in a time when god wants us to be the salt in the midst of this thing there's some things that need to be preserved there's some things that need to be eliminated and we have to be part of these conversations so well said. So well said. And, you know, Beck, just go ahead and, and speak into, like, what, you know, you hate to call it white church and black church, but there's, because there, there's a good bit of mix now compared to, you know, before you couldn't find mix at all, but there is, and have, and it's not just black and white, there's the Hispanic, and his, you know, everybody get ready because um, as of, I don't know what year. I know right now more than 50% of all babies born in America are minorities. So where we're headed mathematically one way or the other is we're going to have to learn how to get along in a whole nother, uh, in a whole nother level because that's just the reality. Whites are not going to be the majority. And you go, oh, see, that's what we're afraid of. And that's all <laughs> from the enemy and pride and all that kind of stuff. So it's, yeah, we're going to be the beautiful multi- multi-skin colored body of Christ here in a manifestation in the United States. But, you know, speak to, and, and, and this is who we hope will be a primary audience for us as well, is pastors, white pastors, what would be, 
uh, what would be things that you would like to see them do moving forward? In light of this is something the Lord clearly surfacing as well. This is not just Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, a sinister movement, but this is an issue we've been involved uh, with, with really you, Bishop Perry Jackson, for years, knowing this thing needs to be addressed. Anybody has a heart for reformation <clears throat> realizes we have, we have not been getting the job done as the body of Christ of moving the conversation, moving the reconciliation, moving the healing forward. And solutions. And, right. Actual solutions. And the solutions. And so um, we want to hear from you. If there's anything unsaid, I think you, you, you broadly covered it, but I'm, I'm just being specific. So for him to speak to white leaders. Yeah. White us. leaders, pastors, like what, what could they do? to be ministers of reconciliation in this process? Yeah, I think we have to become more intentional. Uh, first, let me give a broad statement before I give some more directional things to do. Uh, for, <clears throat> for the younger generation, what young folks are sending me stuff, they're, they're looking at our conferences, right? And they're looking at, you know, that placard on Facebook or whatever, 18 different speakers and it's either lily white or it's all black and young folks are are sending me you know dms and they're like i talk more about diversity at my job than we do in the church what in the world is going on how can we have a conference where there's actually there's absolutely no ethnic diversity and uh that's one thing and then the second thing is why is it that when we have these conferences the black people are the only ones talking about uh, healing the racial divide, and everybody else talks about the last prophetic thing they got. So they 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 they're seeing this thing, and uh, so that's what I'm getting from young people. And so here's what one young person actually said to me: We've treated healing the racial divide like it's the person who's wounded in the Good Samaritan story, and you have the prayer intercessor, the 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 the, the the, the priest walking by, and then you have uh, uh, the priest walks by, the Levite walks by, the worship leader. So you got the prayer movement, you got the worship movement. They're walking by, the healing of the racial divide, who's wounded on the side of the road, and everybody's just focusing on staying focused and not you, not letting that become a distraction. Wow. And then, and then they said this to me, but at least in that story. They were on their way to the church house. In our nation, those folks are on their way to the ballot box because they're thinking we're not going to ever get these folks votes. So let's not even focus on trying to help, bring healing, or even address what's going on. Mm. And so that's the way you have the next generation feels about this, right? And and now we're at this place right right now where the thing that everybody has called the distraction. Has now become the attraction. Mm -hmm. It's front and center, and so we have to we have to address it. Mm -hmm. So how do we address it? One relationship at a time. This is not a quick fix, and we have to be very intentional. See, um, to be honest, for my white brothers and sisters, you could do live your whole life without having one interaction with a black person, Asian person, or Hispanic person mm -hmm. from your job. To uh, to your, your friends you hang out with, the entertainment that you watch, have zero <laughs> interaction, and so 
for us as minorities, if we want to make it in this society, if we want to make it in this culture, we have to know what to say, what not to say. We have to know uh, not just etiquette, but nuance, likes, dislikes. In other words, we probably know white people more than they know themselves, right? Oh, because we have to know these things in order. Yeah, and, and we have our own, you know, subcultures and stuff. We have our own cuisine. We have our own, you know, uh, uh, ethnic cultural things too. But to make it in the mainstream, you need to know. Well, it would help big time if my white brothers and sisters got out of the silos and started meeting with people that didn't look like them and became intentional about friendships, even get past the awkward stuff and everything. So I'm, I've actually had to do that myself too. Uh, I've actually been working with trying to heal the divide between African Americans and, and the Jewish community. Uh, there have been several attacks of, on, on, on the Jewish community from people under the influence of the Hebrew Israelite uh, cult. And um, uh, for example, there was a, a Jewish rabbi in New York where a black man came into his uh, home with a machete and hacked him to death with the machete. He died three weeks later. There was some 